Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in the 14th week of our summer series. It's amazing. We're 14 weeks in, uh, where we have been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter all summer long. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, I am going to give you a brief introduction. If you're not joining us for the first time today and you've been here for the last 14 weeks, I apologize for the thing you're about to hear, because you've heard it 14 times before, uh, I like to think of it as the theme song to your favorite uh, sitcom. So eventually you should be able to sing along. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. Uh, so you can sit tight. But for those who are joining us for the first time, uh, the reason we've been studying through this book for the last 14 weeks is because as you study the culture of ancient Corinth, you discover pretty rapidly that our cities are quite a bit alike. Uh, like Corinth, uh, we are a port city and a transient place where people are constantly coming and going. Corinth was known within the greater Roman Empire as a place of great wealth and influence that stretched beyond its borders. But like us, Corinth was also recognized within that region as a very uh, sexually progressive and sinfully indulgent city. As we've said every single week, it was the place where you could go to do whatever you wanted to do, be whoever you wanted to be, indulge in whatever you wanted to indulge in, and not just be tolerated, but to be celebrated for it. Uh, But like Corinth, uh, we have planted a church here because we believe that the light of the gospel shines brightest in the darkest of places, and Paul believed the same, so he planted a church in Corinth in AD 49, and hundreds of people begin to get saved and baptized like we saw this morning and added into the family of God. He's moving, people are getting set free, and the church grew really rapidly. In fact, so rapidly that after about a year and a half, Paul felt like he could move on and continue to plant in other regions, uh, but shortly after his departure, he began to get some frantic letters from these young believers in Corinth who were discovering that it was quite a bit more difficult to live for Christ than they anticipated in their particular culture. It was pervasive. Some of the ways of Corinth were making their way into the church, and, and so Paul writes this letter in response to their concerns, which we now know as the book of 1 Corinthians, and he begins to address their issues one by one, showing them how the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an answer to every single one of their problems, hence the title, The Answer. And since our cities are so similar, we believe that their resolution is our resolution, their answer is our answer, the gospel still works today, still shows us how to live for Christ in a culture like San Francisco, and so every week we've taken a chapter from this book and contextualized the problems to our setting and discovered how we can apply the gospel to our modern day and discovering how to deal with the problems that we face, not just in church, but in our world. Uh, Today, since it is the 14th week, we jump into the 14th chapter, a very lengthy and content-rich portion of this book, but also one of the highly debated and potentially polarizing chapters in this book. And uh, it is for those latter reasons that I received many text messages this last week, including from my very own mother, (laughs) who told me that they were praying for me as I prepared this sermon because I think a lot of people understood how, uh, how many landmines I could step on talking about different theological and denominational issues. Some even said they pitied me for having to, to take this chapter and preach on it. 
Um, however, I will say this, as I've studied it for the last week, I've actually gotten really excited about what I get to share today. And that's not because I'm a type eight personality on the Enneagram that likes to challenge and deal with confrontation, uh, nor am I arrogant enough to believe that I'm gonna resolve centuries long debates uh, in 35 minutes here on the stage. Let's be honest. I'm the tatted pastor on the west side of San Francisco with a disturbing need to show his ankles every single Sunday morning from the stage, all right? So I'm not resolving anything today, clearly. <laughs> but the reason I, I've gotten so excited about sharing this portion of the book is because as I've done what we've done every single week, contextualized the problem that this ancient church was facing, I've begin to, begun to look at this chapter through an entirely different lens. And I, I believe that you will to do, by the, to do as well by the time we conclude today. In fact, I hope that you are as inspired as I've been inspired this last week to dig into the things of God like never before and maybe approach the gathering of the saints that we call church every single Sunday a little bit differently than you did uh, from the past. So uh, with that, we'll jump in. I'm gonna pray and uh, let me give you a title for our chat before we pray. Uh, I, I wanna call this sermon this morning, Make Yourself at Home. Mm, make yourself at home. Uh, en español, por mis personas que hablan español, mi casa es su casa. <laughs> que bueno, eh? Huh? Huh? Yo quiero Taco Bell. All right. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, speak to us today. And as we go to uh, this text that ha has been debated for centuries, this portion of 1 Corinthians that has literally created denominational division and, and polarization within the body of Christ, we just ask, Holy Spirit, that our hearts, our minds will be open to receive from you. Um, God, we, we lay everything at your feet today. Our church experience, our past, this community, our preconceived ideas of what the gathering is supposed to look like, and we ask that you would speak to us and show us how to approach this, this sacred space on Sundays as we come together in your name. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, and the church said amen, amen. So if we could distill this entire chapter down to a singular phrase, it would be this. Paul, in chapter 14, is addressing some disruptions within the church, and he's talking about how to bring decency and order into the gathering that we now know as Sunday mornings. Uh, specifically, he begins to speak about how there's been some disruption in the use and operation of the gifts of the Spirit and how order needs to come back into the house as people begin to exercise those gifts. Uh, but before we dive into that topic, I have been asked by some of the members of our team, actually just one, his name's David Escobedo, uh, to specifically address uh, what Paul speaks about in some of the latter verses of this chapter uh, around another lesser disruptive issue, but an equally as debated and important issue in the body of Christ. Uh, and that would be some gender distinctions that Paul begins to speak about once again in this book. Um, for verses 34 through 39, he once again begins to discuss gender roles in the gathering of the saints. I say once again because we talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 11 as it pertained to head coverings and hairstyles, uh, which were customary in their day, but not in ours. Um, and now, three chapters later, Paul begins to speak about gender distinctions once again in church, only he's not talking about hairstyles and head coverings. He's talking about who does and doesn't have permission to speak up in the gathering of the saints or ask questions in the gathering of saints about what is being taught. And uh, he concludes in verse 34 that the women in the church of Corinth should be silent at all times. Yes, boo. 
Uh, now, obviously, that is not a practice that we embrace here at the Father's House. It's not a practice that we embrace in our culture. We have a number of female leaders here, female pa- <laughs> thank you, Jojo, uh, female pastors on our team who preach the Word of God, who carry spiritual weight. Uh, my wife and I, Robin, we, 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 we co-pastor this church. In fact, there are more pastors that are female on our team than male, which makes me feel outnumbered at times. Uh, but that's obviously not something we embrace in this community. But before we all biss and uh, boo and hiss Paul for, for saying that women shouldn't be allowed to talk or some people decide that today's their last day at the Father's house because I said we have female pastors here, uh, let me remind us of a truth that we discussed just a few weeks ago in chapter 11. Like all of the New Testament letters, Paul's statements here about women need to be considered within their appropriate cultural context, Okay. Again, a reminder, every one of these New Testament letters was written to a specific group of people at a specific time to address specific issues that they were dealing with in their community. And while most of the New Testament letters provide universal truths that the church is supposed to embrace for all time, occasionally there are nuanced issues that needed to be addressed in that church, and they were only intended to be applied to that community and not church for all time. And the only way to distinguish the difference between those things is to do your contextual homework, to discover what was happening in that setting. And as we do the homework here for this chapter, we discover rather quickly that Paul is not making some sweeping statement about how women are not allowed to talk in church. In fact, just a few chapters prior, he gave directions about how men and women are supposed to be able to address the public gathering. In fact, he even talks about women prophesying, which is to speak on behalf of God to the community. So to cherry pick this, this scripture out of the Bible and apply some universal truth would be to take it way out of its context. It would mean that Paul is literally contradicting himself in the exact same letter to the exact same group of people. Rather, what Paul's addressing here is disruption once again in the church, where, as is the case in many Eastern cultures today, the women would sit on one side of the sanctuary and the men would sit on the other side of the sanctuary, kind of like a junior high dance. And as the word was being presented, if one of the women in the congregation didn't understand what the pastor was saying, many of them in Corinth were yelling across the room to their spouse on the other side, like, yo, what's this joker talking about? I don't understand. And Paul's like, you can't do that. <laughs> it's not okay. Which, as a preacher of the gospel, I can co-sign on that. <laughs> I don't want that in this, in this community today. Like, I get distracted enough when a baby starts crying and they need to go out to the family room, but the parent doesn't hear the cry because they're numb to it at this point. Or when someone literally gets up in the middle of a sermon with their whole family and walks out the door, and I'm like, did I offend you? Only to find out that they made brunch plans and they weren't planning on staying the whole time. Literally happens almost every single week here at the Father's house. I'm like, you don't think I can see you from up here? So be warned if you're planning on leaving halfway through the service today, all right? So I can understand what Paul is saying here, but the only way we discover that is if we do some context homework, if we dig into the word and understand what's happening in their culture. So once again, we offer a tool to you. If you would like to learn how to study the Bible in context, uh, a couple of years ago, we recorded some videos. We put them on our YouTube channel called How to Study the Bible. And uh, there's a QR code coming up behind me in a graphic, I think. Maybe not. Okay. Go to the app and uh, to the page there and you can uh, see all on the resource page how you can study the Bible in context. We want to serve you and put some tools in your belt. Capiche?
All right, capiche. <laughs> All right, so now, having uh, addressed uh, the argument of silence, let's move into the main issue that Paul begins to address in this chapter. Uh, the use of the gifts and how they created some disruption among the saints. Specifically, Paul, for the first 25 verses, he begins to compare and contrast the gift of prophecy and speaking in tongues. And he concludes in this section that the church in Corinth, as a result of their context and all of the unbelievers in their city, that they should be pursuing the gift of prophecy over tongues because if a new believer or someone who is searching out for God walks into their community and just sees a whole bunch of people praying in tongues, it's gonna freak them out. And they're gonna go, I don't know what's happening here. These people are weird. And they will walk out the door without having an opportunity to experience the power of God and give their life to Jesus. And Paul Paul's basically saying, hey, I understand you want to pray in tongues, but your freedom is not more important than that person's salvation. So you can keep this thing on ice for a little bit. However, if you prophesy in the gathering, then that person will hear their inner thoughts from the, from the Lord and they'll be convinced that he is real and they might give their life to Jesus. So, so pursue prophecy. But then after this 25 verse rant, he kind of summarizes his heart for this whole chapter in verse 26, where he says this. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, but everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. But if no one is present who can interpret, then they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone's prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak one after the other so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember, people who prophesy, they are in control of their spirit and they can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. Let all things be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, now a lot there to unpack and a lot of different roads that we could go down for the remainder of this sermon. And depending on your church background, your theological persuasion, there is a road that you want me to travel down right now. There is a part of that portion of scripture that you focus in on. You're like, I hope he talks about that today. For the charismatic and the Pentecostal, you want me to focus on tongues and prophecy and the distinction between the gift of tongues and the grace of tongues and how prophecy works in the gathering. For the cessationist among us who believes that all the gifts are dead, you're like focusing on that decency and order thing at the end of there. And God forbid things get a little bit unpredictable in the gathering of the saints. And for the sexist among us, you're like, hey, go back to that part where the women can't talk in church anymore. All right? That's the one we'll talk about that one. <laughs> but wherever you land on that continuum today, here's what I want to ask you to do for our, our remaining moments together. I want you to put your theological persuasions on the shelf all the filters and the lenses whereby you read scripture, the things that, that you saw in that text, I want you to just set those aside for a couple moments if we could. And instead, I would like us to focus in on a verse that probably did not pop off the page to you when we read this, but one that did for me and messed with me all week long. Can we agree to do that for a couple of moments? Okay, here's the verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. When you come together, each of you, each of you, say each of you, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. When you come together for church, he says, each of you, all of y'all, everybody, 
That word in the Greek is, is the word hekas. In English, it literally is hekas. Hekas people brought something to church with them. Everybody showed up with something to offer. They had a word, they had a revelation. They weren't coming into the gathering waiting for someone else to give them something. They, they came into the gathering already filled up and prepared, say, saying, I'm bringing something to the table. If I were to contextualize this issue, I wanna ask a question. Is that your church experience? Is that how you've walked into the church in America? Is that how you've walked into the church in San Francisco? Let me personalize it. Is that how you walk into church every single Sunday going, I got something to give today? Like when I, when I do the contextual work in this text, I begin to wonder like, is this even a problem we face any longer? Is this a problem we really need to break down and talk about bringing order to the community? Are people coming to church, and I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about church global, church local. Are people showing up bubbling over from their private pursuits with God where they're so full of the Spirit, they've been prayed up and studied up and filled up and they're showing up to the gathering and we're at risk of things getting a little bit too chaotic because everybody wants to participate and do something or on the other side of the scale, have we embraced, dare I say, idolized order so much that we could just as easily rip this part of the scriptures out of our Bible because it doesn't really apply to the church in America? <laughs> I, I have to wonder if Paul was to write a letter to the church as we know it today, if he wouldn't begin to warn us about decency and order, but instead he would say, as he, as he did to the Thessalonians, do not quench the movement of the Holy Spirit in your gatherings, because that seems to be the problem we're facing more today than a problem of disorder in the house. And let me just be clear. I love me some order, all right? I, I like order. Where are all my, like, everything has a place, everything's in its place kind of people? Yeah, you're my people, all right? I love you. What's wrong with the rest of the people in the room? I just don't know. Like, I like things a certain way. I like order. Someone said to me out there, or I said to someone else who was setting up church with us today, uh, I think Ephraim, our, our lead for Vibe, he said, uh, hey, you know, be careful because Pastor Tim has OCD. This needs to be in a certain place. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Like people know, I, I like things a certain way. I like my house clean. I like my car clean. I clean the car every single week because the rest of my family treats it like a trash can. I'm all about clean and orderly. I like my socks to match both on my feet and inside my drawer. I twitch a little bit when I open it up and I unfold some socks and they're not matching and I gotta go searching because I, I just can't close the drawer until everything's back the way it's supposed to be. I like my bathroom clean, everything put away the toilet paper draped correctly over the top, not sagging from behind. Who gave birth to these psychopaths who put it on the other side, right? What is the matter with you? I love order so much, I can't even go to bed unless things are like put together. Like, I can't leave dishes in the sink. I'll manifest in bed, I gotta put them in the dishwasher. And don't even get me started on the dishwasher. There is a correct way to load a dishwasher and there is a very, very wrong way to load a dishwasher. Can I get an amen from some of the orderly people in the room? 
Robin sent me this meme uh, uh, months ago, and I've been waiting for the moment to use it in church, and today is that day, all right? So, so check this out real quick. In every partnership, there's a person who stacks the dishwasher like a Scandinavian architect and a person who stacks the dishwasher like a raccoon on meth. <laughs> I'll give you one guess who the meth-ridden raccoon is in our house. All right. <laughs> I love you, boo. I love me some order. No, Tim, you have a problem. You call it a problem, I call it responsible, okay? Like, I love order. But there is such a thing as too much order, isn't there? You ever been to someone's house where it's like you're afraid to even sit on the furniture because everything's just so perfectly put together and you're like, I don't wanna mess anything up. Feels like you're walking around in like a glass shop and you just, ah, you're scared. Uh, they, not only do they have the remove your shoes sign on the door, but they've got like a sanitization station at the, at the door, like hand sanitizer and those little booties that you put over your feet as you walk through the house, literally been to some of those houses. Yeah, yeah, there is such a thing as too much order. And when you walk into a house like that, it does not matter if the host utters the words of our sermon title today. They can tell you to make yourself at home all they want, but they have created an environment where you are unable to do so. Some order is good, dare I say necessary, but too much order makes it impossible for you to make yourself at home. And when I read through this text and I contextualize the problem, I, I gotta wonder, have we overcorrected in the area of order? When it comes to the life of the spirit, have we ordered ourselves to death sometimes? To borrow the phrase from our title, I gotta wonder that if in our quest for order, we haven't made it so that God himself is incapable of making himself at home in his own house. Does he have permission to come in and mess things up a little bit? Let me remind all of us how this thing called the church started. This did not start with a group of, of highly organized and educated individuals creating some strategically ordered plan, a brilliant marketing setup to propagate the gospel across planet Earth. That's not how this whole thing started. It started with 120 people in an upper room, sweating, calling out to God, asking him to move. And after 50 days of crying out to the king, the Holy Spirit showed up in power, began to blow in the form of a mighty rushing wind, distributing cloven tongues of fire to everybody present, and he messed everything up that they thought was normal. I don't know if you've been around mighty rushing wind lately. It is not polite. It is not known for keeping things in order and put together. Wind messes everything up. And so I, I guess I'm asking, could we use a little bit more wind? Could we let things blow a little bit more around here? And listen, I'm not saying, hey, next week, bring your shofar and your flag to church, or right? we're going crazy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you should just scream in tongues in the middle of the sermon next week. Please don't, all right? I don't want things to get weird. That's not what I'm asking. Obviously, that would be an overcorrection to an overcorrection. That's, Paul is not talking about church services looking like that here. He's trying to bring some order. Nor am I suggesting that we are not already experiencing the power of God here at the Father's house. I think grading on a curve, things are going pretty well around here. There's a bit of unpredictability. 
Justin's talking about Rocky during worship. We're free, we're dancing, we're lifting our hands, we're singing, JoJo's screaming at the top of her lungs every once in a while. You're like, did someone just get murdered over there? I don't know. And obviously the power of God is working in our midst. People are getting saved and baptized and healed up and delivered. My daughter was miraculously healed back in February. Like, yeah, we're seeing God move. So I'm not saying God's not moving. Please don't hear that. I guess I'm just wondering, man, is, is there more? As I read through this chapter, I, I feel like something in me stirs to go, God, there's more than what we've seen. There's more power. There's more of the gifts being released among us, more prophetic words and words of knowledge and more, more, more of his spirit moving in our midst. I'll just take a little bit more breeze is fine. You know, just is there more that God wants to do among us? And I, I know that even as I say that, it makes some people nervous. You're like, dang it, I was just starting to like this place. Now things are going to get weird. <laughs> Gotta go find another church. And there's another group of people who are like, finally, pastor's going to let the lid off this place and stop quenching the movement of the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> I know we got a continuum in the room represented. Before you celebrate or you mourn my comments, let me just say this. I don't have that much power. It's not really up to me. An environment where the Spirit of God is moving so consistently, where the gifts are bubbling over and people are receiving words and receiving healing, that's not because of what a pastor permits. It's not because of what a leadership team creates. It's not because of what a church culture supports. No, if we look at this chapter of scripture, it's obvious. Ultimately, that kind of environment is contingent on the private pursuit of the people who are present in the gathering. Remember what Paul was writing about. Why did he write this in the first place? Because everybody showing up to church was bringing something. Everyone had a word, everyone had a revelation, everyone had a song, everyone had, had done the work behind the scenes. They were showing up pre-filled to the gathering. They had cultivated this private pursuit of Jesus. So when they got together, it was like this inertia, this momentum of everybody going, man, I'm just so filled up on God, I'm on fire, I'm ready to release something into the gathering. It wasn't because the pastor had the right sermon or the worship team had the right songs. It's because the people came carrying something into the house. I love the way uh, Pastor Nikki Gumbel, who is the uh, leader of Alpha and, uh, in, in the UK and the pastor of, of Holy Trinity Brompton, here's what he writes about this section. He says, uh, what is clear about the church in Corinth is that the people, both men and women, did not come just as consumers, but as contributors. The question we should ask is not what am I getting out of church, but what am I giving out at church? They did not come just to receive, but also to help others. If we all come to church with this attitude of being a contributor, it will totally transform our services of worship. Selah. Stop and think about that for a moment. The reason the power of God was moving in Corinth was not because the pastor not because of the team, not because the worship guys just hit that right note at the right moment and the whole room erupted. It was because the people were showing up with something. Like a Holy Ghost potluck, everybody was bringing something to the table. And so in light of those statements, let me do what I love to do. I'm gonna ask you a question. That personalization moment where we take everything we've just discussed up until this point 
Don't just apply it to an ancient church in Corinth, but force ourselves to apply it to our own lives. Let me, let me ask you this. Are you a consumer or a contributor? Not just in the body of Christ, if this is your church, are you a consumer or are you a contributor? To borrow Nikki's statements, do you come solely to get or are you also here to give? And we don't even have to get into the gifts yet. I'm just talking about your mindset when you walk into church on a Sunday morning. Are you coming going, I'm ready to give something out? Or are you just here to consume? And I'm resisting the urge right now to tap into my inner Jeff Foxworthy and say, you might be a consumer if, <laughs> you might be a consumer if <laughs> you, you don't give, you don't serve, you just sit every single week and you have been for the last two years. You might be a consumer if you show up late every single week to church you get a song and a half of worship in and you think it's no big deal because at least you get to hear the word, but worship is actually the only thing you contribute to God in this setting. It's the only thing you give, but you consume everything else. But again, I'm resisting the urge to do that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just asking the question that demands to be asked as a result of this text. How do you come to the house? Do you come to contribute or do you come to consume? And let me say this. It is okay to be a consumer for a season. Some of you are here right now searching out God, new to faith. God brought you into this community because you've got some church hurt and some trauma you're dealing with from the last place and he's bringing you to heal. And if any of those three describe your situation, by all means, sit, relax, fill up, drink deep of the presence of God, get healed up, get built up, get put back together. I'm not asking anyone to draw from an empty well and pour out, that's not what I'm saying. So yeah, if you gotta consume for a season, consume, but don't stay there. <laughs> because if you're not careful, what should be a life season becomes a lifestyle, and before you know it, years have passed, and you're sitting in the same seat auditing church, going, I wish things looked a little bit different than they did before, and all you're doing is talking about what's wrong, but you're not even contributing to see. Don't stay there, because listen, God's plan for your life is not to consume forever, to sit on the couch and just eat and eat and eat and eat, eventually, He's filling you up so that you can be poured out, so that you can come and serve the community of believers, so that you can utilize your gifts and pray for the sick and bring a word of exhortation and do what he's called you to do to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's called all of us to do. And let me say this, that's where church gets fun. Church gets fun for you when you're not just here to get, but you're like, what can I give today? How can I contribute to what God is doing in this city and in this community? There is nothing more fulfilling than coming to the house filled up, going, what can I pour out today? How much time do I got? All right, here's a story. I, I remember um, 
years ago when I was a youth pastor, uh, one of the first times somebody asked me to come to their church and, and preach for their, their youth ministry on a Wednesday night. And I was terrified. I'd never done anything like that before. I'd only been preaching to our people. And, uh, and I'm like, man, I don't want to mess this one up. And it's one thing to like mess up in front of your own people and, you know, <laughs> say something heretical in front of your own people because then you can correct it later. But like when you're in someone else's house, you're like, okay, I got to bring something. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm, everyone's expecting me to serve this community well. So in the weeks leading up, I'm praying, I'm fasting. I'm like, God, fill me up. Give me something to say to these young people. And so the day comes and I'm prayed up and I'm filled up and I'm read up and I'm like, okay, let's go and do the thing and preach the sermon and and some people get saved. And just about the time I'm ready to hand the microphone off to the pastor, the Holy Spirit uh, says, hey, I want you to speak these three words over the room before you conclude. And, and I've never done anything like that before. And, and so I'm like, hey guys, I'm sorry. Um, at the risk of making a fool of myself, I feel like the Holy Spirit's giving me these three words. And I don't know who this is for, but I just gotta say them real quick. Let hope arise. And as soon as I said it, the Holy Spirit said, say it again. I'm like, let hope arise. <laughs> and suddenly I just kept saying it. Like, it got awkward for like 30 seconds. It's like a CD was skipping. For those young, a CD is a circular, never mind. <laughs> let hope arise, let hope arise, let hope arise for like 30 seconds. And, and about 30 seconds in, after the room's getting quiet and staring at me like, what is wrong with this guy? a girl in the middle of the room just begins to weep uncontrollably. She just breaks and it's loud and everybody hears her. A few people around her start gathering and laying hands on her. A few people are hugging her and she's just losing it. I had no idea what was happening. Later on, I discovered that that young woman's name was Hope. And three days prior, Hope had tried to commit suicide, but she had failed. And unbeknownst to everybody else in that community, Hope was attempting suicide later on that night. She was coming to church to get things right with Jesus before she killed herself. And yet when she heard her name, let hope arise. Every single time that phrase was uttered, it was like a chain being broken and the spirit of suicide being delivered right there in the gathering. What is that? That's power of God moving in the gathering. That's what God wants to do in his church. He wants to do the unpredictable. He wants to single an individual out in a gathering and say, here's what I've got for you. Here's what I'm breaking off of your life. He wants to speak and move and heal and deliver people from depression and anxiety and sickness and all the other garbage that we have to deal with in this, in this earth. And he doesn't just want to use one person to do it. I am not special. Many of you know that. Ask my wife. <laughs> On my best day, I am nothing more than a donkey that God occasionally uses to say a couple of things on a Sunday morning. But while I am not that special, I can be prepared. I can walk into the gathering of saints, filled up, read up, prayed up, going, God, what do you want to do through me today? And so can you. That's what God wants to do. He wants to fill you up to the point where you're bubbling over and you lay hands on the sick. You give a word of encouragement. You stop in the middle of worship. You walk over to someone as I saw happen down here this morning and say, hey, I don't know if this makes any sense, but God wants to speak a word over your life today. He wants to move in the gathering of the saints to do what doesn't make sense. It's unpredictable, but it's when heaven touches earth and changes an environment. 
Church is not supposed to be some predictable hour and 15 minute gathering where we sing one fast song and three anthems and sandwich a baptism in between them and a couple of announcements while a guy up there wah, wah, wah with the stunning ankles every single week. That's not what he wants to do. He wants to move in power. He wants to sweep into a room like a mighty rushing wind and move among his church. He wants to make himself at home. Sweating today. (laughs) But the only way he can do that is if we're open to it. That corporate grace is contingent upon a personal pursuit. Everyone's got to come with something. As one evangelist said, if you want to see revival, draw a circle around yourself and say, God, start here. To borrow the words of our title one more time, before God can make himself at home in this house, he has to be given permission to make himself at home in your heart. And so that brings me to the final scripture for the day. I'll invite the worship team to come, but I'm gonna read this out in just a moment. Here's what I believe to be the invitation today. Again, not an invitation to just get crazy. Not an invitation to suggest that God hasn't done enough yet. If he did nothing more than what he's done at the Father's house, he's done more than enough. But an invitation to open up the door to the Holy Spirit Say, God, what do you want to do through me? How can you use me? And so, and so here's what I want you to do. Just close your eyes for a moment as we read this last scripture and personalize this to the best of your ability. These are the words of Jesus. That the apostle John speaks out in the book of Revelation to the church of Laodicea. And he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Personalize it. The Holy Spirit speaking over your heart today. Behold, I'm standing at the door of your heart. I'm knocking. You got two choices. You can say, ah, if you come in, you're gonna mess things up. I, I like the way my life is going. It's neat and put together. I don't want anything to change. I've got this figured out. I got my plan. Or you can open up the door, let the wind in, blow some stuff around. But the promise is if you open up that door, he will come in. But he's a gentleman. He responds to invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Father, we hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church right now. We have ears to hear. God, I I just, I open up right now and I say, come, come Holy Spirit. We give you permission to move, give you permission in our lives personally shake things up to make things a little less predictable come Holy Spirit maybe even as I say that this morning there would be someone here today who would say the door I need to open up is that door to relationship I've been far from God and I don't really know him you're talking about using gifts and 
praying for somebody and coming to church with something to offer. I, I just, I, I got nothing to offer today. I love what Justin said in worship a few moments ago. If all you got is a hallelujah, that's cool. God will take what you got. Maybe all you have to offer today is your yes in response to this invitation to salvation. Know this, Jesus is not asking you to fix yourself, clean yourself up, become this obedient child before he'll accept you. He died on the cross for every one of your sins. The Bible says that a simple confession, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. That's all it takes today, a simple confession. And if you're far from God today and you need to open up your heart to him, can I just ask you to quickly lift your hand and look up at me so I can pray with you as you make a decision to follow Jesus? Got you, thank you, sweetheart. Got you, bro, thank you. Yeah. Awesome, sorry, I got you, thank you. All right, church, can we pray this all together with those making this decision? Everyone say, Jesus, today I open up my heart. I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you, to be your disciple. Forgive me of my sin and help me to walk in your ways from this day forward. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed for just one more moment. Holy Spirit, we ask over our gatherings, even the one we're going to mention in just a couple of moments this Tuesday, we ask that you would come and move in power. We thank you for what we've seen. We thank you for what we've experienced. But God, we thank you that there is also more. And as a community, we just say yes and amen to all you want to do in your house. It's not our house. It's the Father's house. And God, we want you to be able to make yourself at home here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Come on, let's celebrate with every person making that decision to follow Jesus today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.